When you picture a serial killer, what do you see? Perhaps you picture someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, a young man with a troubled childhood and a history of animal abuse. Or maybe you picture Ted Bundy, stalking and killing women and girls like a predator for sexual satisfaction. Overwhelmingly, serial killers have been generalized as charming, manipulative men who kill their victims for personal gratification. But in November 1990, as the bodies of murdered men started to pile up throughout central Florida, investigators realized they were tracking a rare kind of beast. A female serial killer. Welcome to Crime Soup Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Kanapis. And I'm Kaylee Carter. And this week, we'll be discussing a string of seven murders in Central Florida from 1989 to 1991 that have all been attributed to the same killer. This is a story of Eileen Wernos and the men whose lives she brutally ended. On December 1st, 1989, a man was out walking his dogs in Ormond Beach, Florida, a city just north of Daytona on Florida's east coast, when he spotted a beige 1977 Cadillac Coupe de Ville abandoned among the palmettos off John Anderson Drive. The man called police and Sergeant John Bonnevere from the Volusia County Sheriff's Office arrived to investigate. Sergeant Bonnevere had been with the Sheriff's Department for about 10 years at this point and noted quite a few interesting details about this abandoned car. First of all, there were no keys in the car, but scattered about on the ground outside was a wallet, several papers, two plastic tumblers, a half-empty bottle of vodka, and some condoms. And it appeared that someone had attempted to bury all of these items, but failed. After running the license plate numbers and rummaging through the discarded wallet, it became clear that the car's missing owner was a 51-year-old man named Richard Mallory from Clearwater, Florida. So some things about Richard Mallory. Richard Mallory was a single man who lived alone in an apartment in Clearwater, which is on the west coast of Florida, almost three hours away from where his car was found abandoned. And when investigators look into his private life, they learn that Richard owned an electronics repair shop, and his most recent service call had been on November 30th, just one day before his car was found over 160 miles away. What investigators discover after talking to one of his employees his ex-girlfriend, searching his business and his home, is that Richard was in serious debt. But his debt didn't stop him from frequenting a lot of topless bars and spending money he didn't have on strippers and paying strippers for sexual favors. In fact, police are able to find two women in particular who admit that they were with Richard on the evening of November 30th, the night before his car was found. And he had given these women electronics from his shop in exchange for, quote-unquote, lap dances. <laughs> I say quote-unquote because I don't think they were just giving him lap dances. I think that's what they told police they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of electronics? I'll give you an iPad for a well, BJ. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Damn. No, this is this is 1989. So it was a oh. TV. It was a TV and a VCR. Ooh. Jesus Christ, that's a terrible deal. And not in 1989. It wasn't. Fair enough. Fair enough. Like that was the hot thing, right? A new VCR. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For watching my VHS tapes. I don't have proof that they ex- they exchange sexual favors. But side note, so I, I read um I read a book about this case and they go into great depth about Richard Mallory and I've I've cut out quite a bit of it. But these two particular women, they're both whatever you want to call them, exotic dancers, strippers. He this guy, Richard Mallory, he's fifty one, right? He was in all of this debt. He really did not have money. I think he even owed a bunch of money like on his rent that hadn't been paid and all that kind of stuff. And his customers at the electronics repair shop even said that like, you know, I would drop off my electronics to be repaired and it would be months and we'd constantly have to be banging on the door and demanding like, hey, when's my stuff going to be ready, right? How is he still in business? (laughs) I don't know, but he had all this debt and then he would go on these long trips all around Florida and... He was like a regular at the strip clubs. And it wasn't just like one or two strip clubs. It was like all of them. (laughs) Like the police kept going into these strip clubs and being like and showing his picture to people. They're like, oh, yeah, he's here all the time. Oh, my God. He knew all the dancers. He knew all the owners. Like that's what that was his thing. Like that was his hobby was strippers. Either they loved him there or they hated him there. They were like, he always has something to give us, or he never has fucking anything to give us. Because <laughs> he's broke and he just comes in here. No, the reason he was broke is because what little money he did have coming in through the shop just went straight back to these dancers. But both of these women, and I'm I'm not gonna name them, it's not they're not super important to the story. He essentially offered both of these women electronics from his shop in exchange for what they say are lap dances. The police can't find him, so he can't corroborate this. What's funny is that they track down each of these women separately, and each of them says, oh, no, I didn't have sex with him. The other one had sex with him. (laughs) They're like, don't put that on the fucking record. So both of these women have the same story, which is that they did their thing. He hooked up their electronics, like he paid them, right, mm-hmm. for their services. And then they both say the same thing, which is that he left in one piece and they he left alive, essentially. Yeah. But it's believed that Richard never returned home that night. But instead, he mysteriously started a long drive. And this is late at night, right? Mm-hmm. So after he left these women's houses, it's believed that he started a long drive from Tampa to Daytona where he was known to enjoy long weekends of bar hopping. But then he mysteriously disappeared and his car was found the next afternoon. It wasn't until almost two weeks later that Richard Mallory's deceased body was found by two men out in the woods northwest of Daytona Beach. The two men had been scavenging for scrap metal when they smelled the stench of decay coming from beneath a bit of old carpet. At first, they thought it was likely a dead deer until they noticed a blackened human hand protruding out of a tarp. They drove to the nearest gas station and called the police to report what they had found. And when I was reading this, I was like, why'd they go to a gas station? And I remembered that nobody has cell phones. 1989. You find a dead body and you have to get into your car. You have to drive to a service station and use their phone to report a dead body. 
No wonder, like, small town drama was a thing because they went to a gas station. Somebody at the gas station heard and then they told everybody. Exactly. (laughs) So once the body was taken for autopsy, the pathologist and his assistant noted three small caliber bullet holes in Richard's chest and the three bullets recovered from his body all appeared to be 22 caliber rounds. Two of the shots had torn into his lungs, causing them both to collapse, which means he likely spent anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes desperately trying to breathe before he eventually died, which is a terrible way to go. Mm-hmm. His death was classified as a homicide, and this is the first of many unsolved homicides about to plague the state of Florida in the coming years. Dun, dun, dun. So a little over five months after Richard Mallory's body was found, another middle-aged man named David Spears mysteriously disappeared while driving his pickup truck on I-75 from Sarasota to Orlando on May 19th. David was supposed to meet up with his ex-wife to go birthday shopping for their daughter, but he never arrived. Six days later, his pickup truck was found abandoned on the side of the freeway with a flat tire. All of the doors were unlocked and the license plates had been removed. David's nude body was found a week later out in the woods, 40 miles north of Tampa. He had been shot six times with a 22 caliber weapon throughout his chest and abdomen. Damn. Yeah. Why is he naked and who is shooting him six times in the chest? You have any thoughts so far? I mean... I don't know this case, but my immediate reaction is that a woman is luring men with the promise of sex and then killing them. If women were serial killers more often, we would be terrifying because men are so easy to manipulate. Men are so easy to get alone. Well, because we're not we're not seen as a threat. Yeah, exactly. They think that they're going to take advantage of us. But bitch, if I have a gun, it's over for you. But yeah, that's what I think is happening. I think somebody's luring these men out with for sexual favors or whatever, and then killing them. I don't know what reasoning she has, but... So you know that it's a female killer, female serial killer, because I told you in the beginning, but is there anything about these? If you were an investigator and you didn't know who you were looking for, is there anything that tells you that it's a woman? No. I mean, maybe the fact that one guy's naked. I mean, that might, that's not like a cut and dry, like, obviously this is a woman. But even that doesn't really tell you that it's a woman because it could be, I feel like whenever nude men are found murdered, a lot of times it's gay men. Yeah. More often. Um, For sure. But I think that it might be something that an investigator would consider if they're naked, but maybe not as much as they would consider another man being the culprit. So I'll tell you right now, like originally a female serial killer was not on their radar because it's just so rare and like unheard of. So originally with these first two murders, they think that they're looking for a man. But something that actually is odd that I don't think a lot of people think about, men are more likely to kill someone like execution style or aim for the head. The fact that these men are, like, bullet-ridden all throughout their chest is actually a little bit strange. So we have Richard Mallory, and then five months later, we have David Spears. And then, only five days later, the nude body of another middle-aged man was found a few miles off I-75 in Pasco County. But this body was too badly decomposed to obtain any fingerprints. And they couldn't determine his time of death, but they could tell he'd been shot 
eight times with a 22 caliber weapon. Oh. His body had been covered by an electric blanket and a large amount of tall grass. And this unknown man's car was found the following day. And they're able to identify him as 40-year-old Charles Caskadon. He was last seen alive on May 31st. He was heading to Tampa in his Cadillac. For work, he was a truck driver and a part-time rodeo bull rider. So it's possible this guy died before either of the other two men because he was more decomposed than he should have been for only five days. Probably not before Richard Mallory, but... Between Richard and... Yeah, he just wasn't found for longer. And I learned something new while researching this. So apparently whenever, and this is really gross, so apologies, but if they have trouble identifying a deceased body, depending on the stage of decomposition, sometimes they can like rehydrate the hands in order to get fingerprints off of them. Whoa. Did you know that? No. (laughs) So they'll take the hand like they'll separate it from the body they'll ship it off to a lab and then the lab will like resalinate it like they'll float it in like saline water and then it'll like rehydrate it and then sometimes they can just take the hand and then get the fingerprints off of it you mean they send it off to a mad scientist (laughs) you know that guy where we always send our hands to yeah (laughs) the hand guy yeah because that's what i'm hearing right now yes (laughs) Are you wondering how you get that job? I don't know. (laughs) You have to be magical, whimsical, and a little bit evil. That's how you get that job. I imagine you don't need any kind of credentials. You just put up a (laughs) billboard like, send me your hands. (laughs) I can do it. 99% confidence. You just send a letter to all the local police departments that you're now in business. (laughs) You send them pictures of your shop with the floating hands everywhere. They know exactly what you'll do. She seems like a nice lady. (laughs) (laughs) We'll send her our hands if we need them. Okay. So now we're at three bodies in like a five-month period, right? So a month later, this is just going to keep going. A month later, on the 4th of July, a woman named Rhonda Bailey in Orange Springs, Florida, was sitting on her porch along with her husband and her cousin when they were startled by the sound of tires screeching. And then the view of two women getting out of a car, throwing beer cans out into the woods. One was blonde and one was brunette. When Rhonda tried to offer the women help, the blonde woman pleaded with her not to call the police. Well, that's not suspicious. (laughs) The car that the two women had been driving had obviously sustained serious damage and the windshield was completely busted out. But the pair of women just drove away nonetheless. But so obviously this stands out to Rhonda Bailey because that doesn't happen every day. She's like, who are these ladies? Anyways, later that same afternoon, so this is 4th of July, these same two women were spotted by a different witness, a motorist named Harmon Jeter, as he was driving south on State Road 315. But this time the women were carrying a red and white cooler between them. So Harmon stopped to see if they needed a ride and noticed that the blonde had blood all over her. Oh, sloppy. The two women told him they'd been in a bad accident and needed a ride to Highway 40, but Harmon wasn't headed that direction. Instead of giving them a ride, he went to his brother-in-law's house and phoned the fire department. Again, he doesn't have a cell phone, so think about this. You see a woman, two women carrying a cooler, one's covered in blood, and you just have to drive to your brother-in-law's house to use the phone. (laughs) 
No I'm, wonder serial killers were getting away with shit. Nobody seriously. had a cell phone to call and be like, I'm looking at him right now. He's covered in blood. <laughs> By the time the cops arrived, they're like, well, we didn't see anything. Yeah, well, this guy's crazy. <laughs> Obviously. So the chief of the volunteer fire department and his wife spot these two women right where Harmon Jeter told them they'd be. But when they offered the women help, because, again, they think that these women have been in a car accident and that's why they're covered in blood. Mm -hmm. They try to offer these women help and the women decline, even though they literally just asked the other guy for help. They're just walking on the side of a highway? Carrying a cooler, yeah. But it's 4th of July. Everyone's got coolers. Yeah, but not covered in blood. <laughs> Firework accident. It's yeah. So that all happens and it doesn't go anywhere, by the way. They just see these women and nothing happens. Literally, you can get away with any crime, I guess, if you're a woman. Because nobody thinks you're going to be murdering people. <laughs> At least in 1989. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is 1990 now. Oh, 1990. Excuse me. Okay, but remember Rhonda Bailey, who was sitting on her porch and saw... Yeah. yeah. Just down the road from Rhonda Bailey's home, Marion County deputies find the beat-up car that these two women had been driving. But when they run the VIN number, it says the car belongs to a 65-year-old man named Peter Seams, who had just been listed as a missing person only two weeks earlier. Peter Seams was described as a devout Christian and a veteran merchant seaman who'd retired the previous year. At the time of his disappearance, his wife was in Germany doing missionary work, and he was on his way to visit his sister in New Jersey, but he never arrived. And to this day, he has never been found. Oh, was he in the cooler? Or did we find out what's in the cooler? I did not even think about that. Maybe they cut him up. That's why she was covered in blood. Yikes. I didn't think about that. Thanks for that image, Kaylee. Sorry. I can always rely on Kaylee to think like a psychopath. <laughs> okay, but investigators were able to find a bloody palm print from the trunk of his car, which would prove critical to solving this case later. Yeah, they got sloppy. I'm going to be honest with you. They've been sloppy this whole time. <laughs> Over three weeks later... A 50-year-old delivery driver named Troy Burris left the Gilchrist Sausage Company in Ocala, Florida on the morning of July 30th, but he never returned after his delivery route was supposed to end. His manager tried calling one of his last delivery stops, a place called Salt Springs Grocery, but they said he never arrived. So Troy's wife made the difficult decision to call police about 2 a.m. when she felt certain that her husband wasn't returning home. And two hours later, Troy's truck was spotted 20 miles east of Ocala, sitting on a shoulder off State Route 19. The cab was unlocked, the engine was cold, and there were no keys inside. So investigators were able to trace his last movements up until 2.24 the afternoon of his disappearance, which is when he made a delivery to the Seville grocery store. But then he never arrived at his next stop, which was only 15 minutes away. I am... <laughs> do, do they not have any other hobbies like is this like their girls night <laughs> this sounds like a lot of work for a girls night well i don't know about you but i like to relax a girl's day afternoon yeah take a load off have a margarita luring men to their death is for some people but i don't think it's for me personally because <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fucking work 
Well, we'll talk about it. Like, why Why are they doing this? We'll get to it. But this one really does. this. The, the disappearance of Troy Burris really bothers me because the other ones, like Richard Mallory, for example, he left really late at night. It was like 10 or 11 at night. And he was going to drive a couple hours across the state, right? Yeah. So it makes sense. Like, oh, some hitchhiker killed him, right? Yeah. But this one, Troy is literally, like, on the clock. He's on his delivery route. Broad daylight. Yeah, it's the middle of the afternoon. And his next stop is only 15 minutes away. How much trouble can he get into in a 15-minute drive to his next delivery? And he's probably, like, in a main part of town at a grocery store. Yeah. Like, not in the middle of nowhere. Not in, like, a seedy spot. It's, like... Like, these crazy women are coming out of the bushes and murdering men. They could be anywhere. Hide your kids, hide your wife. No, hide hide your husbands. (laughs) One second he could be there and next he's gone. (laughs) This one just bewilders me because, yeah, like they must have. The only thing that I can think of is they were like, hey, drive to a remote spot and we'll show you a good time. And he fucking did. And that's how they got him missing in 15 minutes. (laughs) I, I told my husband about this and I was like, I was like, What guy is going to pick up a random person while he's, like, driving his truck on his, you know, on his delivery route? (laughs) And he seriously was like, Hannah, if the women were offering sexual favors, it wouldn't be that hard. (laughs) So he makes his last grocery delivery and he was supposed to go to his next one and he just never made it. Then, five days later, on August 4th, a family was out for an afternoon picnic first mistake this is gonna go so sideways Oh no a family was out for an afternoon picnic in ocala national forest when they noticed a thick trail of ants furiously advancing toward a pile of palmetto leaves as the picnickers looked closer they realized the ants were disappearing up the blue jeans of a deceased man's legs oh my god what a way to ruin a picnic yeah that puts a damper on a perfect day finding a dead body (laughs) with your family (laughs) with your little kids oh my god my son he's already having existential crises if he found a dead body he would never recover he would be unwell for the rest of his life so about eight miles from where his truck had been found troy burris lay dead in the national forest his wallet and driver's license were missing but his wedding band was left intact which I think is interesting. Yeah, that seems somewhat symbolic. He'd been shot twice, once in the upper chest, which damaged his aorta, spine, and left lung, and once in the back, piercing his diaphragm and left kidney. Well, that's random. Why is it random? What are the order of events of those shots? Uh... Like, somebody shot him in the front? Like, if, if I was an investigator and I didn't know that it was two people doing this, be like they shot him in the front and then he didn't fall down so they went around him and shot him in the back or he fell down and then they finished him off that's true okay never mind i'm overthinking it okay so they find him in the ocala national forest right yeah the this just keeps going the following month oh my god how many how many people total did they kill confirmed six but probably seven holy wow The following month, on September 11th, 1990, a 56-year-old retired Alabama police chief named Dick Humphreys was driving on State Route 44, 
heading west to I-75 to get home when he mysteriously disappeared. It's a reoccurring theme. (laughs) So Dick was currently employed as a child abuse investigator for the state of Florida. And he had actually just been at the Wildwood Police Department building for the autopsy of a young boy before he disappeared on his drive home. So he was already having a bad day. Yeah. He and his wife had just celebrated their 35th wedding anniversary the day before. Woof. And then Dick Humphrey's body was discovered the next day on September 12th. He was found off County Road 484 in Marion County with heavy bloodstains across his chest, stomach, shoulder, and back. The knees of his brown pants were stained by grass and his front pockets were turned out. He was in second stage rigor mortis, estimated time of death 16 to 18 hours earlier. Most importantly, though, Dick Humphrey had a single bullet wound to his head. Well, that's new. If this was the same killer, they were escalating. How did it take him so long to shoot through the head? Like, if I was a murderer, (laughs) would I want to shoot people in the chest or the head? Uh, Like, does one feel less escalating than the other? Does one feel less intense? If I had to guess, I'd say that it depends on what your intention with the shots is. If they're just trying to kill you quickly, they would shoot you in the head. But if they're killing you because they have some sort of morbid desire to cause you pain, then they're gonna just keep shooting you throughout the chest to make your life miserable. Yeah. So it sounds like this guy, they just wanted to move on. They were just trying to get rid of a witness and get out of there. Hmm. It is interesting, though, that a lot of these happen in, like, remote forested areas. So they're probably, one, there's probably no one around to even hear the gunshots. And two, if it's coming from the woods, people might think it's just, like, deer hunters or something. It's Florida. People are just shooting their guns into the air for no reason. That's true. (laughs) So a week after finding Dick Humphrey's body, his car was found parked near an abandoned service station in Suwannee County. The license plate, keys, and bumper stickers had all been removed. Well, that's weird. I mean, in most cases, the keys are missing. In a couple of them, the license plate has been missing. So they're obviously trying to halt discovery, right? Yeah. But it doesn't seem to be working. No. Because they just run the VIN number and they're like, oh, yeah, this car belonged to Dick Humphrey. It's going to be found regardless. And also, have you ever tried to take off a bumper sticker? That shit sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it took 12 hours it but they did. got it off <laughs> removing bumper stickers is the worst <laughs> so investigators find this car right and so they de- they decide that they're gonna interview the clerk at the nearest truck stop because if this is where the car is abandoned whoever drove it had to go somewhere right and the clerk tells them that she doesn't recognize dick humphrey's picture that they show her but she did recognize the composite sketch of two women that Rhonda Bailey had seen driving Peter Seams's car back on the 4th of July. Oh. So Rhonda Bailey told police and provided a composite sketch description. Do you have the composite sketch? I do. I want to see it. Want to send it to me? Okay, I'm texting it to you right now. Do these look like two lovely ladies that you would pick up on the side of the road? Oh my god, no. Oh my god, these are terrible composite sketches. They're kind of scary, right? Yeah. Also, this makes me feel like I could be a composite sketch artist. (laughs) (laughs) I could do that. (laughs) Yeah, and after you actually know 
who the killers are, it doesn't even look like them. What the hell? Yeah. The gas station clerk, she looks at this composite sketch and she actually says, oh yeah, I saw them. (laughs) She said that these two women came into the service station and she thought they were sex workers, but she didn't report them, call the police or anything because they didn't linger around too long. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't really cause her any trouble. So she didn't tell anyone. Yeah. So, so far... After finding Dick Humphrey's body, investigators have six dead or missing men. So Peter seems they still haven't found him, right? But they have his Mm -hmm. car. But that's six men total, and they have no motive. (laughs) The police believe that the killer was likely a stranger to all of them. And the only thing they can really gather is that it was probably, each of them was probably robbed, and it seemed to be opportunistic. But now... They have connected uh, the same suspects to more than one victim. They've connected Peter Seams's car with the bloody palm print, and he's missing, to Dick Humphreys. So they have those two connected, at least. So as police raced against the clock to find the two mysterious women they believed were ruthlessly killing male motorists throughout Central Florida, another body was found on a remote logging road on November 19th in Dixie County. 60-year-old Walter Gino Antonio was found completely nude except for a pair of tube socks, his body riddled with bullets. Just like the others, his car was found abandoned far away, this time over 200 miles. Whoa. So at this point, they have seven bodies, or they have six bodies and one missing man. And this is the point which at which police decide that they need to formally and publicly link all of these men's deaths, and they need to ask for help. (laughs) They're like, now, now that like seven men are dead, we kind of need some help. We just thought these were just like a few silly women at first. (laughs) Things are getting serious. Like, no shit, Sherlock. (laughs) You kind of need some help. I will say this. So in true crime, I think there is a degree of truth that When women or children are murdered or go missing, for the most part, there's a little bit more of an urgency about it. When white women or white children go missing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) These guys, I want you to think about this. These are all middle-aged white men. (laughs) All of them. Yeah. I feel like there's actually less of an urgency and police probably feel like there's less of an urgency. Not necessarily when they're found murdered, but when they go missing because... Men up and leave their families all the time. Yes, exactly. Like, they're also more likely to just, like, they probably just committed suicide. Oh, that's rough, too. Yeah. Like, this guy mysteriously disappeared. Uh, Okay, well, he's a middle-aged white guy. What do they do? They they kill themselves. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's true. So, and also, like, they're free to just wander around, do whatever they want. Yeah. And if they're single, like Richard Mallory, it's like, yeah, he was known to just hop on the road late at night and go to topless bars. So if he's missing, like... Like, men don't have predators the way that women do. Yes! So when when women go missing, especially when the media gets a hold of white women and children going missing, it's like, oh, there's a million bad things that could have happened to them. Like, but when grown men go missing, it's like, well, is it more likely they went off of their own free will and volition or did they get... Exactly. Also, men, they just, like, wander into the woods like, I'm going to go on a hike today. (gasps) By themselves. By themselves. 
no regard for their own life or safety. <laughs> Absolutely not. So after they've got seven missing and murdered men, police decide that they're going to run the composite sketch on the news. And the idea of a pair of female serial killers obviously very quickly overtakes local Florida headlines and it spreads nationally. <laughs> like it blows way out of the water. Yeah. So a flood of phone calls came in. And within three weeks, there were over 400 tips received. By December 21st, there were four tips in particular that all pointed to the same suspects. Which is insane, because you saw the composite sketch. <laughs> Who's recognizing these people? Do they really look like that? I need to see real life pictures. <laughs> you will. But also, it's funny because all they know is like, do you know two women who travel together who maybe have murdered a bunch of men? And four different people were like, yeah, actually. <laughs> this is who the, the chicks were writing about. The, the Earl. The, the Earl Dixie song. chicks. Yeah. Now they're just the chicks. But what's the, is it, so, is it just called Earl? Goodbye, Earl. It's Marianne and Wanda. Yeah, this is them. Well, maybe not, actually, because maybe these men weren't doing anything wrong. I don't know. <laughs> oh, we'll get there. So four different tips all named the same two people. 34-year-old Eileen Carol Wernos and her 28-year-old longtime girlfriend, Tyria Jolene Moore. Those are names. Yes. I love it. So Tyria, who went by Ty... So Ty Moore had actually only left her conservative hometown in Ohio weeks before she met an exciting blonde at the Zodiac Bar in Daytona, Florida. Ty had just begun her journey as an out lesbian when she started to fall in love with a domineering and outspoken 30-year-old woman named Eileen Wernos from Rochester, Michigan. And Eileen has several different aliases. Eileen Wernos is her, not her birth name, but her childhood name. Mm -hmm. She also, in some accounts, you'll see that she went by the nickname Lee. And Eileen admitted to Ty that she'd been in and out of jail for theft and armed robbery and that she often prostituted herself to make ends meet. And while her girlfriend Ty discouraged her from engaging in these harmful behaviors, she still stuck by her side. And the pair was basically inseparable. But their living conditions were really terrible. Like, they didn't actually have a permanent residence or any kind of stability. They mostly just lived in motel rooms and crashed on friends' couches for the entire four and a half years of their relationship. That sounds awful. Yeah, I'm trying to think who I love enough to do that for four and a half years. <laughs> four and a half years? At some point, I'd be like, we need to get jobs. Yeah, let's, let's, I'm going to take you down to fill out an application or two. Well, I think Ty actually was more stable. I can't remember. I want to say she was a waitress or something. Okay. Ty was actually, I feel really bad for her. She was the more stable one. And she just happened to fall in love with a very unstable person, which happens. James can attest. <laughs> <laughs> That's Kaylee's husband. Yeah. <laughs> so... In 1989, after the pair had been dating for over three years, Eileen comes home. What home is? I don't know. A motel room or something. Mm -hmm. Eileen comes home and suddenly confesses to Ty that she'd killed a man that day. <laughs> Eileen told her that the man was a client. So this is someone who's buying sex from her. Mm -hmm. Who became abusive. So Eileen killed him in self-defense. And Ty believes Eileen. Mm -hmm. especially because this particular client that we talked about earlier 
Richard Mallory was a convicted rapist. Oh. Oh. So Richard Mallory that we discussed earlier, he was the 51-year-old. He owned the electronic store. He was always going to topless bars. You know, that gem of a man. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it's... I'm convinced the, the girls who worked at the clubs hated him. <laughs> he was probably, probably handsy. He probably didn't pay well. And he probably, like, tried to monopolize all of their time. They probably f***ing hated him. And this was, was, like, decades earlier, but he did serve prison time and was convicted for rape when he was younger. So Ty believes her and is like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to go to police. I love you. It's self-defense. And also, there's probably not a lot of motivation to go to the police because they themselves are doing illegal things. Like, Eileen is prostituting herself. She's, yeah. You can see why she didn't want to go to police, even if it was in self-defense. Okay, mm-hmm. but then... Eileen started to come home with strangers' belongings. Uh, and was Ty like, what is happening? I don't, I really don't know what was going through her head. I think she just really loved Eileen or Lee. And she's kind of like, babe, why are you doing this? I, that is, that is a level of denial. I hope I never find myself in, truly and honestly. Apparently, like, when, uh, People described the inside of their, like, motel room or wherever they were staying, and it was, like, full of toolboxes. (gasps) That she stole from these men's trucks? Yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. And Eileen was very well known among a lot of pawn shop owners. She would come in constantly and be selling tools. (laughs) Which is why I thought it was weird when that one guy's wedding ring was still intact, I was like, if you're going to be pawning a bunch of murder victim stuff, why wouldn't you take their jewelry or their wedding ring? Sometimes people's jewelry is like insured and um, everything that's sold at a pawn shop is like logged into a database. I don't know what it was like in the early 90s, late 80s, but I'm sure it was still written down. And, um, and like you could track people down that way. In fact, when she went into these pawn shops, she actually had to give them her fingerprints. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense. So Ty knows about Richard Mallory's death that she believes was in self-defense. But unknown to Ty, Mallory's murder was actually followed by David Spears five months later, and then Charles Karskadin, and then Peter Seams went missing in June. So these were all ones that Ty didn't know about, that they were just happening and she didn't have any involvement in. Oh my God. When their composite sketches were first circulating in July, Ty left Florida because she saw them and she's like, oh shit, that's us. People Mm -hmm. saw us and they're on to us. So I need to get out of here and we need to let things cool down. Mm Mm-hmm. So Ty leaves and goes to visit family in Pennsylvania. And while Ty is in Pennsylvania, Eileen murders three more men. Troy Burris, Dick Humphrey, and Walter Antonio. What in the fuck is the reason? I I feel bad for Ty. I mean, I do wonder what's going through her head. If she she left for Pennsylvania thinking that she was ever going to come back, or if she finally was like, um... I'm just going to go visit my family for a little bit. I'll be back. And then wasn't planning on coming back. Yeah. So a massive manhunt was initiated and investigators tracked Eileen Wernos to Port Orange, Florida. But they actually didn't arrest her right away. They decided they wanted to survey her, hoping that she would lead them to Ty, who they thought was her accomplice. Mm-hmm. Finally, on January 19th, 1991, 
they arrested Eileen at a bar called Last Resort Bar in Port Orange. And then her girlfriend Ty was arrested the following day at her sister's home that they tracked her down to in Pittston, Pennsylvania. Luckily for police, though, Ty fully cooperated. Mm -hmm. She just told them everything she knew about Eileen, but it was actually somewhat limited. The only homicide that Eileen had actually confessed to was the very first one, Richard Mallory. All of the other missing and murdered men were not openly discussed in their relationship, and Ty claims that she had no involvement in them. So Eileen was killing men and then would call Ty to help her clean up the mess. No. The only one we have Ty linked to is that she was in Peter Seams's car, but we, we have no idea at what point she became involved. It's possible that Eileen killed him, took his car, and then showed up and was like, Hey, Ty, I got us a car for the next week. <gasps> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. But also, it's entirely possible that she's lying and she was yeah. actually involved in all of them. I don't know. <laughs> Who do I believe, Kaylee? I don't know. Nobody. <laughs> so Ty ends up accepting a plea deal wherein if she could get Eileen to accept full responsibility for the murders, Ty would avoid prosecution for her involvement, which is exactly what ended up happening. Ty calls up Eileen and they, the police record it. And, she's, and she gives her like this sob story and tricks her into confessing to killing these men. Mm -hmm. So she completely throws her girlfriend under the bus. That's fair. Only a week after being apprehended, Eileen confessed to committing six homicides, but they actually never found Peter Seams's body, and she claims that she wasn't involved, which I, I'm going to say bullshit, because mm -hmm. she was driving that man's car yeah. around. Yeah. So believe what you will. So this is what they're able to piece together. Allegedly, Eileen would meet these men hitchhiking. She would give them a sob story about trying to get somewhere to see her two little kids, and she would flash them a picture, a fake picture, of these supposed children. And then if they agreed to give her a ride, she would offer them sexual favors in exchange for money. And as a poor, needy mother, these guys almost felt obligated to take her up on the offer. It was practically charitable after all. I mean, they were getting so much out of it. <laughs> okay, but the... This is genius, okay? I'm going to give Eileen credit where credit is due, which is that she doesn't just say like, hey, 50 bucks and I'll have sex with you. She yeah. pulls out a picture of two little children and is like, my children are starving and I'm trying to get to where they are. Won't you please buy sex from me so that I can provide for my children? She knows the game. And the game is that if you, if you can convince the men you're dealing with that you're also a human, mm -hmm. <laughs> things work out a little bit better for you. Yeah. And that's a smart game to play. I think the smartest person, though, in this entire story, though, is that motorist Harmon Jeter, who saw them, saw her covered in blood, carrying the cooler, and she was like, we were in a car accident. Can you take us to Highway 40? And he was like, uh, no, I'm going to call someone. <laughs> yes. Always just do that. Especially if you're a woman, don't fucking give people rides in your car. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, absolutely not. So whether or not all of her victims really did take her up on these offers is unknown. Yeah. But Eileen claims she only turned violent because these particular men got rough with her. She claims that they would get rough with her. She'd pull out her twenty-two pistol and she would defend herself. 
But instead of coming forward to police, which wasn't really an option since she already had a lengthy criminal record, she would instead steal her victims' cars and discard their bodies. So she was insinuating that she got rides from lots of people, that she did favors for lots of people, but yes. only the ones that were violent or rough with her were the ones who got killed. Yes. Whether or not you want to believe that. Yeah. It's a different story, but... Yeah. I'm I'm telling you, <laughs> with this case in particular with Eileen Wernos, and we'll talk about it later, she's not a reliable narrator. Like, yeah. she... She changes her story a million times. She has some delusions, some paranoias. Depending on which interviews you watch or what books you read or who you talk to, her story completely changes. So I'm giving it to you the best that I can. <laughs> <laughs> but with Peter Seam, so the one man that's never been found, mm -hmm. although he is strongly believed to be deceased and it was his car that Eileen and Ty were seen in possession of, his body has never been found. And Eileen denied killing him. So that's why she's only ever been charged with six murders, not seven. Wild. Eileen's defense team tried to get leniency in her conviction by outlining her troubled childhood, but it didn't garner enough sympathy, and she was eventually handed six death sentences. What was her troubled childhood like? We're going to talk about it right now. Jeez. Oh, so to this day, Eileen Wernos remains a polarizing figure, causing heated discussion about the links between childhood trauma and sociopathic behavior, because it is undeniable that Eileen Carol Wernos had a very traumatizing childhood. So Eileen's mother, Diane Wernos, was only 14 years old when she got married to an 18-year-old man named Leo Pittman. Oh. And they had a baby boy almost exactly nine months later. Oh. Whether or not she was already pregnant when they got married, I don't know. But it, the timeline is very close. So this baby boy that they had was Eileen's older brother, Keith. And then, this is what I hate, only two months after giving birth, Diane fell pregnant again, this time with baby girl Eileen. Well, I hate this story. <laughs> so she had a very young mother, a very young father, right? who's getting pregnant back to back anyways. But luckily for Diane and good for Diane, when she was seven months pregnant with Eileen, she separated from her husband because he was arrested and convicted for the kidnap and rape of a seven-year-old girl. Oh my God. Mm. Well, I hate that. Who, who married her off at 14? Her parents signed the paperwork and everything. I don't know what the laws were like back in the 50s. It was the 50s. A 14-year-old baby girl. Yeah, you know what I imagine is that she was probably either having sex or was sexually assaulted by Leo. Mm -hmm. And that was just, that was the common thing at the time is like, oh, well, or she got pregnant. Either yeah. she was having sex, got assaulted, or was pregnant, or all three. And they married her off because they're like, oh, we have to validate this relationship. Yeah. Well, technically, it's all sexual assault because Leo was 18. He was an adult, yeah. She was 14. But he's a child rapist. That's awful. Which also makes me wonder if that's why he was in that relationship with a 14-year-old girl because he mm -hmm. he's a pedophile, right? Yep. Luckily, though, Eileen's father was already in prison before she even had a chance to meet him. Okay. 
but Diane goes on to remarry and have two more children, but for some reason she does not include Keith and Eileen in this new family. Oh. Instead, four and five-year-old Eileen and Keith were adopted by their maternal grandparents, and they were raised with the last name Warnos instead of Pittman. So they have their mother's maiden name. And then to take things even further, these little kids, so Keith and Eileen at four and five years old, were told that their grandparents, Britta and Lori Wernos, were actually their parents. And so they didn't find out the truth about their real parents until they were 12 and 13 years old. I imagine in that time, her parents were probably trying to help her out and have a normal life. Either that, by so they were going to adopt her kids from this previous marriage so she could like start over, or... The man who was interested in Eileen's mother was like, I like you, but listen, you got to get rid of the kids. Because I've heard of that happening, too. There's been women who have murdered their children because their new love interest doesn't want kids. Yeah. So Britta and Lori Wernos were both physically abusive alcoholics. And according to Eileen, her grandfather also sexually abused her. There is fucking nothing good left in this world every time I hear a story like this. Yeah. Like I said before, some accounts that Eileen gives about her life can't actually be corroborated, so you have to take them with a grain of salt. Yeah. It's just like, it's her life story and there's very little um, to back it up. But Eileen also claims that she had a sexual relationship with her older brother, Keith, as well during childhood. Why would she lie about that, though? Exactly. I've seen people be like, yeah, but there's no one to corroborate it. And I'm like, but why would she lie about that? Why would she tell people that? Because that makes people see her differently. If she was intentionally trying to be manipulative, she would know that that doesn't garner sympathy. That garners, like, disgust from people. Exactly. Yeah. And when Eileen was only 14 years old, she falls pregnant, but it's still unclear. Like, to this day, we're not really positive who exactly fathered the child. So Eileen... Gave birth to a baby boy on March 23rd, 1971. And Eileen named the baby Keith after her brother, which caused some people to speculate that the child was his, that they were conceived from the sexual relationship with her brother. Yeah. Others thought the baby may have been the result of sexual abuse by her grandfather. The problem is so many people were sexually abusing her that that's why the paternity is kind of unclear, right? Sad. But... According to Eileen's best friend at the time, Eileen had a really good friend named Dawn Botkins. And according to Dawn, she said that the baby was actually conceived from the sexual assault of one of her grandfather's 60-year-old friends. Oh. Literally, any of the options are terrible. You didn't warn me that this was going to ruin my day. Oh, sorry. Kaylee, <laughs> this is going to ruin your day. Yeah, and it is. It's ruined. <laughs> Should I keep going? Yeah, I need to know. It's already ruined. There's nothing else you can do at this point. <laughs> I need a little treat after this. So even though it's not really clear who fathered the child, regardless, Eileen was sent to live in a home for unwed mothers, and her grandparents made her give up the baby for adoption. And then not long after the baby was born, Eileen's grandmother Britta died of liver failure from years of heavy drinking. And her grandfather didn't want to be responsible for her anymore, so Eileen supported herself by committing petty crimes and sleeping in abandoned cars. So he just kicked her out of the house. At like 16, 17? 16, yeah. Oh, jeez. And after she had just given birth, too. Yeah. 
So she would literally find abandoned cars like in the woods near her grandfather's house and she would sleep in them. But actually the superior thing that she discovered is that if she prostituted herself, she could find a warm place to sleep because she could sleep at, she could sometimes sleep the night at customers' homes. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of her like early childhood. And there's other accounts that say that even as early as 11 years old, she was selling sexual favors to people like at school in exchange for cigarettes and money at 11 years old. That means it had been happening to her for a while and that somebody taught her that. Yes. I didn't even know what sex was at 11 years old. When I hear cases or stories like this of like severe child abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, and people turn into like murderers and rapists and killers, I'm like, there's got to be a way that the people who did this to her can be charged because it, it honestly feels like they should be. They created this. Like, if the story can be corroborated, if, if it's legitimate, if it's factual that these people abused her like this, I think they should be fucking charged, too. They're partially responsible for the death of all those men. Maybe that's insane to say, because obviously she's an adult, she can make her own choices. But the way that we're raised shapes our worldview, and that kind of limits the choices and th- that you make as an adult. Like, it, it shrinks your world to a world of violence and hate and terror. And there aren't a lot of choices outside of those things once once your world is created like that. And there's obviously a limit to that, but I it just makes me angry. She was failed by just... Everyone. Every person that was supposed to care for her failed her. There was no adult in her life, it sounds like, that actually cared about her. <sighs> no. Or her brother, even. What happened to her brother? Um, He actually died young of esophageal cancer when he was only like 20 years old. Hmm. You want to hear what happens next? Yeah. (laughs) So those habits that Eileen developed at a very young age, like 11 years old, those stick with her. She's a street person, right? Mm -hmm. Like she gets her money from hustling, from stealing, from prostituting. Like she never knows where she's going to be sleeping that night. That's all she knows. That's the way she's lived her life the whole time she's been alive. It's going to stay like that until she dies. Like, that's what ends up happening. But in 1976, so when she's 20 years old, she decides to move to Daytona, Florida. But like I said, her lifestyle doesn't actually change. What's odd, though, is that, like, she was a really out... Everyone describes her as being very outspoken and fun to be around. And so... She actually briefly married a man who was like this 69-year-old yacht club president. (laughs) Because she had charisma, like people liked her. She was a hoot to be around from what I can tell. But their marriage only lasted like nine weeks because he picked up on a lot of her really bad habits. Like she would go out drinking, she would get into violent altercations. I think she got arrested for like shooting a shooting a firearm from a moving vehicle. <laughs> like she's she's rough around the edges and and then some past the edges, I don't know. She's rough all around. But she, I just think it's funny that she kind of like very temporarily was married to like this really classy like older wealthy man and then he was like, "Uh, okay, you're actually crazy." And so they got the they got divorced. I looked up her picture and I was like, oh my God, I've like, I've seen the screenshots. Charlize Theron plays 
her in a movie. I've never seen the movie and I actually don't know the story, <laughs> but I know because it's like a huge pop culture reference, right? And there's yeah. one young photo of her where I'm like, she's she's beautiful. It looks like the trauma aged her prematurely. I mean, a lot of the pictures that circulate are right before like she was executed when mm-hmm. she was like in her 40s but like when she was younger even without makeup like she's got amazing bone structure yeah and like if you look at childhood pictures when she's a little little girl she is precious she just looks like a doll yeah so eileen was a drifter she barely was making ends meet she was committing thefts and robberies and prostituting herself to pay for cheap motel rooms and this is when she met tyria moore in 1986 But just like with her husband, romantic relationships didn't change Eileen's behavior, and probably nothing, in my opinion, could have stopped her from eventually escalating to her first murder in November 1989. Yeah. Eventually, after Eileen had been on death row for the better part of a decade, she completely gave up fighting. She didn't want to go through the appeals process anymore, and she made peace with her impending execution. She actually ended up confessing to killing all of her victims in cold blood and was practically begging the state of Florida to execute her. Oh. She sat before a judge and told them that she was simply an angry person and that if they freed her, she would kill again. But something that never sat right with her, however, was being referred to as a serial killer. Can you think of like why she might have a problem with that term in particular? I mean, for a few reasons, off the top of my head, it just sounds like a serial killer sounds like you can't control it, that you have no reason, that you're just thirsty for blood for no reason. And in her mind, she probably felt like she had legitimate reasons to do this. Because like I said at the beginning, when people picture serial killers, a lot of times it's men and a lot of times it's men who they kill because they enjoy it. Yeah. And they do it because they get a thrill out of it or they get some sort of like strange sexual pleasure from it. Mm-hmm. And that did that did not fit Eileen. She killed them to eliminate a witness that she was robbing. Mm-hmm. It was robbery motivated for her. She was trying to pay for her motel room. She was trying to support the life she had with her girlfriend. It was all just out of like desperate need. And so she doesn't feel like she fits the mold of a serial killer. I killed those seven men in first degree murder and robbery. As they said, they had it right. A serial killer. Not so much like thrill kill. I was into the robbing biz. You know, serial killers are in this thrill killing jazz. I was into the robbing. Just and eliminate a witness. But I'm coming clean before I go in that execution chamber and be executed. So there was no self-defense? There's no self-defense. I'm really sorry what happened about everything. I, I was in, in this, this, to me, this world is nothing but evil. And all of us are full of evil one way or another. Okay, so even though Eileen is just pleading with the state of Florida to execute her, which shouldn't be hard to do. I mean, Florida is like known for executing yeah. people. <laughs> They're a little trigger happy over there. They're, They're very like, trigger pew, happy. Pew, pew, pew. We'll kill them all. <laughs> what was that? Never mind. Okay, but then we have the problem of Eileen's sanity. So the question of her sanity was raised. It should be noted that Eileen's father, like her biological father, was actually a diagnosed schizophrenic. Hmm. And it was obvious throughout her incarceration that Eileen did have severe paranoia. She was convinced that investigators already knew that she had been the one to kill Richard Mallory, and she thinks that they purposely didn't apprehend her. Oh. Oh. 
Which, if you watch the interview, I'm gonna I'm gonna insert an audio clip for our listeners. But she essentially is like, um, I was no professional. I was real sloppy. <laughs> she was like, I think the police knew that it was me because her she had a long criminal history. Her fingerprints were on file, like indefinitely. Oh. There's no reason why she shouldn't have been captured after Richard Mallory's death. And she brings up a good point, except she goes toward conspiracy theory, whereas I lean more toward the cops just suck. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, they knew I did it. They just wanted me to become a serial killer. And I'm like, no, babe, they didn't. They were just bad at their jobs. They just were bad at their job. Okay, so that was one of her paranoias. The other paranoia, and there was there were several, but these were the two big ones. She was also convinced that the prison compound that she was incarcerated at for those 10 years, they had installed a satellite dish. And she was convinced that somehow the satellite dish was linked to the TV and the mirror that she had in her cell and that these electronics, because she she thought the mirror was fake. She thought it was like actually like a listening or a viewing device, right? Mm -hmm. She was convinced that these electronics in her cell were emitting what she called sonic pressure that gave her headaches. Let them know that I know that the cops knew who I was after Richard Mallory died. I left prints everywhere and they covered it up. And let me kill the rest of those guys to turn me into a serial killer. I know they did. Because I was no professional. They had the intercom on in the room. And they kept lying that it wasn't on. And they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. The TV or the mirror something was rigged. They got a huge satellite on the compound. After they put the huge satellite on the compound... Could have been either rigged to the TV set or the mirror or something. Because the electrician, when he put the mirror on the wall, he said, doesn't that look like a computer? The back of it, and he stuck it to the wall. Okay, right off the bat, you're going to think I'm crazy. I don't think she's that crazy. I don't think that means she has schizophrenia. In my very unprofessional opinion, I'm not a freaking psychiatrist or psychologist who can diagnose these things. But if that's it, like, I guess maybe she could have... <laughs> Does that make me insane? <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, no, I've had mirrors that monitored me. (laughs) No, I just, I just imagine like, it's probably really easy to get worked up about stuff like that. Be paranoid when, when you feel guilty about killing people, right? So it's probably really easy to work yourself up um, or like imagine crazy scenarios in your head. But also uh, traumatic childhoods create brain injuries especially from what she went through so she clearly has a brain injury i haven't seen any videos of her talking or anything but she for sure has a brain injury from the way she was raised so that could explain the weird conspiracy theories and stuff court appointed psychologists they decide that she's completely competent for trial and she's sound enough of mind to be executed so they're like yeah she's a little weird but it's fine we can kill her (laughs) I like how at no point was she ever offered, she probably was never offered any kind of, uh, like, rehabilitation for, like, all of the shit she went through. I don't know. No, I'm sure not. They were just going to kill her anyway, so why waste resources on making her brain better when they're just <laughs> well, going to kill her? You want the brain to be healthy before you kill it. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, when we spell stuff out like this, I'm like, what kind of world do we live in? What kind of society have we created? I don't like it. So on October 9th, 2002, Eileen Wernos was executed by lethal injection at Florida State Prison. And I want to read you her last words 
If you didn't think, she, okay, you don't think she's crazy, but I want you, I want you to hear her last words and tell me that she's not crazy. I didn't say she wasn't crazy. I just think that considering the circumstances, I think it's kind of warranted that she turned out the way she did. Okay, yeah, no, that's fair. Okay, but listen, listen to her last words. I shouldn't be laughing. Okay, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock. And I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th. Like the movie, Big Mothership and all, I'll be back. Maybe she believed in reincarnation. Okay, but... Why is it it such in a threatening tone, too? Are you threatening to become a serial killer again? I'm I'm reading it in a threatening tone. Her is probably like, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock. And Jesus. And And Jesus. She says June 6th? What does that mean? Is that a biblical thing? I don't... I don't know. Let me look it up. I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie, Big Mothership and All, I'll Be Back. I don't know that movie. Okay, hold on. You've never seen Independence Day? No. I haven't seen so many movies, Hannah. Okay, that one's actually really good. But I would not include it in my last words before I was executed. It's not that good. So she was pronounced dead at 9.47 a.m. And she was only the 10th woman to be executed in the United States um, since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. And she was actually only the second woman ever executed in the state of Florida. Wow. Don't ask me who the first one was. I didn't look it up. Okay. After she died, her body was cremated and her ashes were given to her best friend that we talked about earlier, Don Bodkins. Poor Don Bodkins was like one of the few people who ever like showed her sympathy back in her childhood when Eileen was obviously having a bad time. Yeah. Don Bodkins was like warned, like, don't go near that girl. She's bad news. And Don Bodkins was like, well, she probably like needs a friend. She yeah. She needs a support system. She never condoned what she did. And actually, documentarians asked Don Bodkins, like, do you think your friend deserves the death penalty? And she's like, uh, yeah, she killed seven men. (laughs) That's so you know it's a real best friend. (laughs) That bitch is crazy. (laughs) Hell yeah. I love her, but she's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Just love it. She's like, uh, obviously. Yeah. Don't patronize me. (laughs) Yeah. But Don Bodkins took Eileen's cremated ashes and took them back to Rochester, Michigan and buried them. But yeah, that's it. I'm just here to ruin your day. I hope I succeeded. That was terrible. Thank you. Well, what was the worst part? Uh, Learning about Eileen's childhood. Because to me, when I learn about that shit, I'm like, oh, so this was preventable is what I'm hearing right now. Like all of this turmoil, all the people she killed... This is what this was preventable. And that and that just really ruins my day. Yeah, it's like, oh, you know what would have resolved all this? Not sexually abusing children. Yeah. That that would be great. E- like with her mother, even, Eileen's mother, we wouldn't have been here if you wouldn't have married off a fourteen year old to a grown man. Well, he was eighteen, but still. She was fourteen. <sighs> Completely preventable. And uh we still haven't found Peter Seam, so if you see him around, let somebody know. <laughs> seem around maybe he did really did just like get out of dodge maybe she scared the crap out of him there's there's a whole bunch of books there's a whole bunch of documentaries i wasn't able to watch all of them but there is one book in particular called dear dawn and it's letters that eileen wrote to her best friend dawn while she was in prison Mm -hmm. 
And like I said before, she's uh, she's a little wishy-washy about her story. So, like, originally she claimed self-defense. Then mm-hmm. she said, no, I killed them all in cold blood, right? Yeah. But I saw one excerpt from the book Dear Dawn where she said that she didn't understand why police were never able to find Peter Seams's body because she said, and I quote, I just left him in the middle of the road. What the hell? Yeah. So she she was confessing to a bunch of stuff and she was like, um... Somebody knows what happened to that man because I just left him in the middle of the road. So if he hasn't been found, then something shady is going on. What the hell? Maybe a freaking animal drug him into the woods or something. I guess that's true. But that's what she claims happens is that. Weird. She just left him in the middle of the road and took his car. So. Wait, this is in Florida, right? The gators? Alligators. Oh my God. I didn't even think about the alligators. I'm actually surprised that gators didn't eat more of the people that she left out. Well, maybe they did. Maybe she was only convicted for six murders. Oh my god, you're right. (gasps) Maybe. Yeah, I would never live in Florida for a lot of reasons, but especially the gators, man. That's how my mom lost her childhood dog. (gasps) No. See? Yeah. That's what. Could you imagine me taking Nico there? (laughs) No offense, but he would not last one day in Florida. No, he wouldn't for so many reasons. Yeah, exactly. He wouldn't go outside. And two, if he did, he'd get eaten by an alligator. So, or crocodile, whatever the hell lived there. The beasts of the Jurassic time. Okay, I'm going to sign us off. Okay. Thanks for tuning in for this week's episode of Crime Soup. Be sure to find us on social media and let us know your thoughts on this case. We're on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We also have an awesome website, crimesouppodcast.com, where you can listen to all past episodes and buy your very own Crime Soup merch. As always, we'll see you next week. Stay safe and bon appetit!